Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast, episode 32, Ultimate Reality. What was Mary Magdalene's first reaction when she encountered the empty tomb? Why didn't she recognize Jesus when she first saw his resurrected body? And why did John write this book anyways? Steve addresses these questions and more in this look at the final chapters of John's Gospel. Tonight, we're mainly going to look, as I said, at chapter 20 on the resurrection and a little bit of a look at 21, which is a type of uh, epilogue to the Gospel. I'll explain that later. The resurrection is not only the climax of John's narrative, everything has led up to it. We, we keep saying that. Everything led up to the Passion, and everything led up to the Crucifixion, and now the final culmination is uh, here in the, uh, in the Resurrection. It is, it is a declaration. The Resurrection, we'll talk a little more later, but it is a, it's a declaration of a whole new reality. It is a new uh, type of life. It's like a new creation, a new existence. It's not just another way uh, of living this one, but an invitation to something completely new. So chapter 20, I needed to decide really how to go at it. And so we'll move around a little bit, but I'm going to look at it through the lives of, of three people or three groups. Mary Magdalene, the disciples, and Thomas. So let's start with Mary. In John's Gospel, women have played a very, very prominent role. Um, just a few examples of uh, Jesus' mother we talked about last week, but also going all the way back to chapter 2, the, the wedding feast. The Samaritan woman, everybody knows about the Samaritan woman in John 4. Uh, Mary and Martha, the two sisters. Uh, and now we're going to see Mary Magdalene, who, who's been fairly invisible, not totally, but fairly invisible, and now she comes to the fore. Uh, it's interesting because she's not been invisible in the synoptics. She was uh, with the small group of women who were at the cross. And now as we enter into the final chapter uh, of this narrative, uh, Mary is the first one at the tomb, and she's the first one to see the risen Jesus. That's really important. So, verses 1 and 2. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene uh, came to the tomb early, uh, while it was still dark. She saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. Now I want to jump down to 11 to 18, because it picks it up again with Mary. But Mary stood outside facing the tomb, crying. As she was crying, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting there, one at the head and one at the feet where Jesus' body had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you crying? Because they've taken away my Lord, she told them, and I don't know where they've put him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, though she did not know it was Jesus. Woman, Jesus said to her, Why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Supposing he was the gardener, she replied, Sir, if you've removed him, tell me where you've put him, and I will take him away. Jesus said, 
Mary. Turning around, she said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Don't cling to me, Mary told her, uh, Jesus told her, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord. And she told them what he'd said to her. So Mary was the first one there. It was still dark. And when she saw that the stone had been removed, she had no understanding. She thought Jesus' body had been stolen. Like the disciples, Mary had not understood all of what Jesus had been saying about his imminent crucifixion and resurrection. (coughs) She had no more understanding than the disciples, but she had great love and great loyalty. We saw it at the cross when she was there, and we see it now. And so she runs to the disciples, and she she just makes a very simple declaration um, where she says, "Uh, he's gone. So there's nothing in her except fear and sorrow. There's no hope. There's no anticipation. She's just in a terrible state of anxiety and sadness. Let's jump now down. We'll come back to the disciples running there. But starting at verse 13, when the disciples saw the empty tomb, they left. However, Mary stayed because of the strength of her love. We see John is portraying Mary Magdalene with an incredible nobility, strength of character, a loyalty, and deep, deep feeling. We see Mary as a woman whose heart is broken. Now, one of the themes of this whole study has been recognizing the multi-layers of the scripture. And part of that is recognizing uh, allegorical, metaphorical meaning. And part of that is in the early part of this series, we talked about Christ in the Old Testament. Do you guys remember that? We many times gave examples of Christ in the Old Testament. And for those of you who maybe weren't listening earlier on, my strong encouragement is that you begin to look, go all the way back to Genesis 1 and begin to see uh, God the Son, Christ, uh, pre-incarnate, 2,000 years beyond that, before, before the incarnation. Now, I say that to say that we're going to have a couple of examples in the next few minutes, <coughs> excuse me, of how... Old Testament passages speak for themselves, but they also foretell Christ. And here is a classic right here. We've got Mary, whose heart is just broken. And it took me to the Song of Solomon. Some of your Bibles will say Song of Songs. Uh, Chapter 3, verses 1 and 3. Just think, now think, as as you've read that before about the bride, now think of Mary as a fulfillment of that. Because she says, I sought the one I love. I sought him, but I did not find him. The guards who go about the city found me and said, and I said, have you seen the one I love? 
That is so similar to what we've just witnessed here. The bride prefigures Mary. We really need to learn to read the scripture prophetically. The early fathers insisted that until we understand the deeper meanings, we don't understand the verse or the passage at all. That they, they absolutely insisted that every passage had deeper meaning. So, verse 12, she sees two angels. She looks in. Notice she didn't go in before when Peter and John went in. She didn't. But she looks in and she doesn't recognize them as angels. It's interesting. John makes a point of saying something there. The angels were where? One at the head, one at the foot. John is recalling the two cherubim on either side of the ark, which contained and represented the presence of God. See, these details are so important because we know, I just have said it for weeks, that he in so many ways is saying that, that God the Son, the Word has become flesh. He is fully God. So she sees them, and they say, what are you looking for? I don't know where my master is. And then she turns and sees Jesus, <clears throat> but she did not know it was him. Isn't that interesting? Why? Well, I'm not sure, but I'll put out a few ideas. I think her intense grief blinded her. She was just so grieving. It's like she couldn't cognitively make that shift. Secondly, what was happening was so far outside of her expectations that she simply couldn't see it. She couldn't perceive it because it was not at all what she expected. Psychologists tell us this happens all the time with people. And thirdly, and I put a lot of weight on this, possibility is that Jesus' resurrection body was somehow different than his pre-resurrected body. You think of the two walking on the road to Emmaus and they didn't recognize him until he revealed himself. You think, which we'll touch on very briefly, at the end of John 21 there, they're sitting around the fire in the morning having breakfast and they're kind of like, is that him? No, I don't think so. Well, it might be. There's a, there's a similarity, but there seems to be something different. So, Jesus, um, let me quote it accurately. Jesus addresses her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Supposing he was the gardener, she replied. By the way, notice we're in a garden again. Gardens are such a theme. We talked about that two, three weeks ago when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, their place of life, of, of renewed life, etc. So he says, supposing he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've removed him, tell me where you've put him, and I will take him away. A great sense of responsibility. Somebody's stolen his body. She can't conceive of anything but the body of a dead Jesus. Okay? So I'll do something. I'll take him away. I'll, I've, I've got to do something. And uh, she just wants to find him. Verse 16. One word. Mary. 
Now, either she recognized his voice, but not his appearance. I don't think that's it, because he'd already spoken. But it's possible. Or John is telling us something about this abundant life that he's written again and again about. It is about intimate relationship. It is about abiding. All of those things which are a reflection of when he calls us by name. He called her by name in an instant. Her, her total anxiety and fear and sadness in an instant changed because he called her by name. Again, here's another prophetic picture from Isaiah 43, verses 1 and 4. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Because you are precious in my sight and honored, I love you. So, Jesus, by calling her, he's reaching out to her. He's taking initiative. It's his grace. Here's a thought. At the cross, Jesus achieved a great victory. We talked about Christos Victor last week. Remember? He was victorious over the powers that be. He was victorious over, over Satan, over the, the demonic powers. He was victorious over the intentions of the demonic powers moving through the religious and the political system. What they thought, they thought was his total failure became his total victory, right? Remember we talked about that last week? Well, here's a thought. Isn't it interesting that his first resurrection appearance wasn't in the middle of Jerusalem, wasn't at the temple, wasn't at a place of prominence where he'd say, see, I was victorious. Look, look what the Father did. Instead, it's in a quiet garden away from the limelight. I think that tells us an awful lot about resurrection life. So he appears to Mary. Mary is the one with the most broken past that we know about. Uh, and they're alone together in the garden. So what does this tell me? The risen Christ does not operate on power, but on tenderness and love. It's a whole different kind of victory. And so Mary, he calls her and she goes, ah, and all of this shifts. And her instinctive response upon hearing her name is Rabboni, which you may have wondered in the past, why didn't she just say Rabbi? Well, well, John had her say Rabboni. This is sort of a more solemn, a higher form of uh, of the word rabbi. Uh, he's, he's revealing more of the majesty, John is, even through the term she uses, Rabboni, um, who Jesus really is. <laughs> and then this. And if you look at church fathers, you look at contemporary commentators, verse 17, you get an awful lot of interesting responses. When he says, don't cling to me. Mm -hmm. 
And at first, you know, I used to, I used to think, oh, well, it's because it's like, no, you can't touch me yet because I'm not ascended. You can't do that. But what does he say eight days later to Thomas? Touch me, put your finger in my side. So I don't think that's it. So what is it? It's about Mary's perception. Mary thinks that Jesus has returned and now everything's going to be like it was before. Right? Um, He's never going to leave her. It's going to be just like it was. A very human response. Mary is trying to hold on to Jesus as the source of her joy. This appearance of Jesus... I can't let him go because now everything's turned. Now I'm full of joy. And she mistakes the appearance of the risen Jesus for his permanent presence uh, as a resuscitated man. She sees him like Lazarus was. Oh, he's come back to life. But Jesus, when he says, don't cling to me, he's telling Mary, don't hold on to the past. Don't cling to the way things were. Isn't that so human for us to do? He is indicating that his life is not merely a continuation of the same state as before. It's not just, I was dead and now I'm alive and it's going to be just like before. He won't remain with Mary in the same way. We're back to that word remain. Meno. Abide, remain, dwell. I see it like a resurrection account. From now on, Jesus' permanent presence will not be by way of his physical appearance, but by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. And of course, Mary can't understand that. Certainly not in one word, Mary. It's a new relationship. And really what John's leading us to is what he talked about uh, in the farewell discourse when Jesus said, you know, I'm in the Father and you're in me and I'm in you. This mutual indwelling. This is the new basis of relationship, not his physical appearance. So those are some of the things that I think were going on with don't cling to me. I think it's, for me, it's much more credible than, oh, it, it wouldn't be safe for her to touch him because he's not ascended yet. I don't think that's it at all. It's mainly about her. He's trying to begin to open up a whole new kind of relationship that he is now going to have with all of his disciples. Verse 17 and 18, he says, But Mary, go to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them what he'd said to her. By the way, this is the very first time that he refers to the disciples as my brothers. So Mary is the first person sent to proclaim the risen Lord. What does that make her? What's the word for sent one? Apostle. Isn't that interesting? This is very significant. John is, I'm convinced, John is establishing things in the church after one generation. 
And we'll get, we'll get to this a little more in a few minutes. But, but she, it's a woman who is the first apostle of the resurrection. So notice this. She goes and tells the disciples, and they do not come running back to the garden. There's no indication that they believed her. Now, we've been sticking just to John, but it's interesting that in Mark's account, Mark 16, 14, his account differs from John's, but he says afterwards he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him uh, after he had risen. Well, we're going to see John brings a very different presentation, but it is really interesting to me that Mary comes running in the door and tells them what's happened because Jesus said go tell them and they don't leave the house isn't that interesting so what's going on why this incredible prominence and prevalence and, and raising up of a woman of Mary John is saying something a generation, it's now a generation since the beginning of the church. And he's saying something about the role of women, I think. And I think he's saying something about men's reluctance to receive them. Is this possible? Mm-hmm. I think it is. I think it is. Is this why John devotes so much of the resurrection account to Mary? It's huge. The resurrection account isn't that long. And she gets this huge section that goes pretty deep. Mary is an important sign for us. When we hear the Lord call us by name, it turns our anxiety and sorrow into joy. There's a great longing to hear the Lord. Maybe it's audible, but for most of us, it's, it's on the inside, but it's, it's Him. And when He calls us by name, I told you guys in passing the simplest thing, and I'll never, ever forget it. 19 years ago, remember I told you I was out walking, I was spending two months kind of alone with the Lord, or most of the two months, and I'd totally forgotten it was my birthday. Totally forgotten. And while I was out walking and just enjoying Him, He said, Happy birthday, son. That's such a simple thing I know. But for me, I thought of that again this week when I read Mary. Now here is something that I've really been thinking about a lot. Mary Magdalene is really Mary of Magdala. Okay? Magdalene is, she's from Magdala. Magdala was a place on the Sea of Galilee where the Roman soldiers camped. So her name, Mary Magdala, or Magdalene, her name in the Bible is Mary of the Roman camp. Because remember, she was a prostitute. That's why I said, of the people we know, she had the most broken life of all, and who's the first one who Jesus appears to? Isn't that amazing? Mary of the Roman camp. So Mary is a living sign of God's unlimited forgiveness and his compassion and his love. And I would even add his respect. 
It is no coincidence that John focused so much on Mary as the first witness of his resurrection. Which takes me back to another prophetic passage in Hosea. Hosea was a prophet who God told him, go marry a prostitute. Her name was Gomer. And she just broke his heart again and again and again. Hosea 2, 14 and then 19 and 20. Therefore, I'm going to persuade her, lead her to the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. I will take you to be my wife forever. This is the Lord speaking. I will take you to be my wife in righteousness, justice, love, and compassion. I will take you to be my wife in faithfulness, and you will know the Lord. Mary had strayed far, far away, and yet Jesus restored her. And his restoration was so complete that she became the first of all this new humanity living with resurrection life. Isn't that powerful? To me, it's, it's incredible. I've actually been thinking about it for two days, just keep thinking and thinking about it. It's grace. It's compassion. He honors her. He never looks down at her. He never corrects her. He just receives her. And so a prostitute, Mary of the Roman camp, becomes the first apostle of the good news. Isn't that amazing? This week's episode is brought to you by our journey to the Philippines. On March 10th, a team will travel to Eastern Samar, one of the poorest provinces in the Philippines. This region is routinely hit by devastating typhoons, which lead to the spread of waterborne illnesses and a general sense of hopelessness. You could be the one to bring hope. On this journey, you will see God work in ways that you never imagined. The blind will see, the deaf will hear, and hundreds will respond to the gospel. You will get to see the joy in a mother's face as you deliver a water filter that may well rescue her child's life. If you're a regular listener, you've heard me talking about Journeys of Compassion all year long. If you haven't yet joined Impact Nations on a journey, I'm left with only one question. What are you waiting for? Trust me, you will never be the same again. Visit impactnations.com slash philippines to learn more. And now, back to the podcast. Okay, let's talk about the disciples. Verses 3 through 10. Mary's run said, He's missing! He's missing! The stone's moved! The tomb's empty! Ah! At that, Peter and the other disciple went out heading for the tomb. We know the other disciple is John. We've talked about that. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. Stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then following him, Simon Peter came also. He entered the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there. The wrapping that had been on his head was not lying with the linen cloths, but was folded up in a separate place by itself. See how John just deals in details? The other disciple who had reached the tomb first, that would be John, then entered the tomb, and he saw and believed. For they still did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went home again. 
Now, much, much, much has been made of John arriving first. They often say he had a greater love. Uh, Peter was of two minds. I, John was younger. He was the youngest, the youngest guy. When my kids were 18, and I was 40-something, guess who won every foot race? It wasn't me. <laughs> so I think it just might be another indication of his young age. But he waited for Peter. This was likely out of deference because even though Peter had failed, don't forget that in Matthew 16, 16 to 19, Jesus had established him. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. My father, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom. Okay? So I think that there was a place of recognizing Peter's leadership. Secondly, the detail of the grave clothes lying there with the face cloth folded carefully. What's going on? John is giving us historical detail to show that Jesus' body was not taken by grave robbers. Because the, 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 the linen wouldn't be there and it's complete and the face cloth. Thirdly, notice it says that John believed. He saw it and he believed. Didn't understand, but he believed. But it doesn't say that about Peter. It's unclear if he believed. It may be that he was too clouded by what we know was his great sense of guilt over his, his failure of denying the Lord three times. And then here's what's interesting. What did Mary do? She, she looked and she went, turned and she looked at the gardener and she encountered Jesus and she grabbed him. What did these guys do? Hmm. Boy, that's interesting. And they went home. Mm-hmm. Verses 19 to 23. So now we've interspersed Mary and her whole interaction. She goes, Jesus sends her, right, to them with the news, and now we've got, as I said, there's no indication when she said, I've seen the Lord, he's risen, that they didn't run there. They stayed in the house. Now we pick it up, verse 19. In the evening of that first day of the week, the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked because of their fear of the Jews. Then Jesus came, stood among them, and said to them, Peace to you. Having said this, he showed them his hands and his side. So the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. I think that's really important. It's a little bit like Mary. They went from fear to rejoicing instantly. And Jesus said to them, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. After saying this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now, in here we've got a couple of really interesting passages. Again, that have an awful lot of words have been printed over these. So first of all, they've gathered together in fear. It's important that John says the doors were locked, both literally and I think figuratively, thematically. Fear had locked the disciples up emotionally. Fear always paralyzes. Um, And so Jesus comes into the room. So just like when he said Mary, he comes into the room, he takes initiative. He's not waiting for them to get it together. 
he takes the initiative in the midst of their fear, in the midst of their anxiety. It's interesting that unlike Mark's account, Jesus did not criticize or judge them, either for their fear or even for deserting at his greatest need, at his trial and execution. Instead, what he's going to do in a few minutes is confirm his choice of them as his representatives. And just like with Mary, John is stressing the love and forgiveness of Christ. Isn't that interesting? He didn't even hint at that. Thanks, guys. I was kind of looking for you during my trial, but I, I guess you went out somewhere. I mean, nothing. Just simply peace be to you. And so this is a really strong theme of love and forgiveness in Christ. And then Jesus gives them their mission. And I want to point out three or four things about this. First, he shows them signs. His wounds and his hands, his side, his feet. That he knows they're ready to believe. He knows these signs will help them to rearrange their whole thinking. So, by saying it was those signs, John is once again stressing that Jesus was truly dead and has now risen. He wasn't asleep. He wasn't in a coma. Earlier we dealt with, he wasn't, his body wasn't stolen. He is establishing again, all the way through this, the historical fact of Christ's death and resurrection. Um, like Mary... The physical appearance of Christ is what they could understand. So they rejoiced. And this fulfills what Jesus said in John 16, 21 and 22. He told them, you're sad now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice with a joy that no one can take away from you. That is, after all, just a few days before this. Um, and then, verse 21, as the Father sent me, so I send you. Their mission is explicitly the same as what the Father gave to Jesus. The very same way the Father sent me, I'm sending you that way. That's why, for us, as we, all of us want to minister, it's so important to spend a lot of time in the Gospels. Because we are being sent in the same way that Jesus was being sent. We're back to the theme of following Jesus that we talked about several weeks ago. And now we come to a really interesting verse. After saying this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, the word there, breathe, is the same word used in Genesis 2-7 in the Septuagint, the Greek translation. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust, uh, from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature this is so obvious and so profound what John is showing us Jesus is giving a new kind of breath of life John has consistently through this gospel called it eternal life um, if you want to look on your own we'll go back to chapter 3 his interaction with Nicodemus explaining about eternal life and the wind, the, the wind of the Spirit. I think that when John said he breathed on them using that same word, um, that he was also very aware 
of that lengthy prophecy in Ezekiel 37, the Valley of Bones. Remember, he prophesied of the bones and they come together and then they sinews and joints and everything. And then the Lord said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain that they may live. I think it's very likely that John saw what Jesus did as a fulfillment of Ezekiel's prophecy. It was a prophecy that was just universally known uh, by the Jewish people. So he breathed the Spirit. What does this verse mean? Well, it's about new creation. It's about eternal life. New creation is all about life in the Spirit. Uh, Eternal life in the form of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Remember in John 7, when he said in a loud voice to the temple, during the festival, he said, uh, whoever's thirsty, let him come and drink, right? And then he says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from him. By this he meant the Spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. The Spirit was not given yet because Jesus had not yet been glorified, and now he had. This is the inauguration. As he breathes upon them, this is the inauguration of the age of the Spirit of the life in the Spirit. This is what Paul continually reminded and exhorted the early church about. I'm convinced that Paul's central message, as I've said before, was not justification by faith, which of course was there. I think his central message is, you are now a people of the Spirit. As he says uh, in 2 Corinthians, you are a new creation. A people of the Spirit, you have a whole new kind of life. So if that's what's going on as he breathed in them, then what about Pentecost? What about Acts 2 when the Spirit comes? He says, wait and the Spirit will come. I think there are two very different events with two very different purposes. Here in John, Jesus is giving or imparting to the disciples true spiritual life. In Pentecost, he was giving them power to carry out the mission. The mission is about eternal life. But the enabling of that mission is in the power of the Spirit. Is that clear to everybody? Mm-hmm. Now we come to a really interesting one. Verse 23. I remember as a young pastor getting a phone call one day, and somebody had read this, a lady in our church, and she phoned me at about 9 o'clock at night and said, what does this verse mean? And I was scrambling. That was a long time ago. Jeepers. Whew. Getting close to 40 years ago. Here's the verse. He says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now there is a long, long, long history in the church of various interpretations of this verse. For the reformers, 
They believed that all believers could release the Lord's forgiveness. For the Catholics, specifically at the Council of Trent, if anybody cares about that, the Counter-Reformation, the Catholics during this time said, no, only priests have the authority to do that because they read it as Jesus said to those apostles, you have that authority. So we say only priests have that authority. For others, it has meant, this verse has meant that the church decides who can take communion or who can be baptized. I tend to believe that in the context of verses 21 and 22, where he's commissioning them to go out, sending them as the Father sent them, empowering them with the Spirit, in that context, I think Jesus is referring to the power and authority he gives them to proclaim the forgiveness of the good news. If they don't go, then there's no opportunity for people to respond therefore no opportunity to receive the gospel and be forgiven it, and frankly no opportunity to reject it and thereby retain their sins. I don't think this has an individual application that I get to, I don't give you forgiveness, I give you forgiveness, I don't, I don't think that's it at all. Um, so I, I don't think it's meant for individuals, I think it's about their commission because of the context. Context is everything. And the context is sending them out into the Great Commission. Okay. Now let's talk about Thomas. But one of the twelve, Thomas, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the disciples kept telling them, We've seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, If I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger uh, into the mark of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will never believe. After eight more days, his disciples were indoors again and Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and he said, Peace to you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and observe my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be an unbeliever, but a believer. Imagine that was an awkward moment for Thomas. <laughs> Thomas responded to him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said, Because you have seen me, you have believed. But those who believe without seeing are blessed. So let's unpackage this a little bit. Thomas was not saying he didn't believe in Jesus. But he did not believe that he had risen and had appeared to the disciples. And you know what? We pick on doubting Thomas. But the others hadn't believed either until Jesus showed up in his physical appearance and they saw the wounds. So John's not really being too hard on Thomas. Secondly, I want you to notice Jesus meets Thomas's challenge, right? Unless I see myself and touch himself, I'm not going to believe. He sees that without any criticism. He meets Thomas at the edge of his faith. He wants Thomas to live with faith as a believer. He meets us on the edge of our faith. 
I'm sure you've got testimonies. I've got many testimonies right on the edge of my faith. This is as much as I can believe for. And that's what he shows up with. Now we come to something that's huge. This is so deliberate in John's account. He touches the wounds, puts his hand in his side, and he says, My Lord and my God. He confesses the faith that until now he's lacked. John has structured this very, very carefully, and it is loaded with meaning. Thomas's confession points back to the beginning of John's gospel. It echoes John 1.1. In the beginning was the Logos. In the beginning was the Word, God the Son, right? It echoes 1.14. And, and the Word became flesh and tabernacled and dwelt among us. The divinity of Christ is what John, the purpose of this gospel is to establish not only the, the historical Christ, but the divinity, God the Son. And so he builds on who Jesus is all the way through this gospel. Look at just chapter 1, verse 29, chapter 1. He's called the Lamb of God. Verse 34, he's called the Son of God. Verse 38, he's called rabbi, which was a term of, of great respect. He's called, verse 49, the king of Israel. He's called, verse 51, the son of man. Let me read that to you again. Just in that one chapter, John is just, he's, he's the word. And he's the lamb of God. And he's the son of God. And he's the rabbi, and he's the king of Israel, and he's the son of man. Surely John is building powerfully as to who is this king of glory, right? Psalm 24. And now the climax of his true identity is reached, not through an incredibly faithful person who was there the whole time, not he, he re, the climax is spoken through somebody who was expressing more openly their unbelief than anyone else, and that's where John puts his words. Isn't that interesting? My Lord and my God, the reader comes full circle from John's introduction, the prologue to now. The last of the disciples realizes Jesus' true identity. This is so significant. This fulfills Jesus' prophecy in John 8, 28, when he said to them, When you uh, lift the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. And that's exactly what happened. John reveals his true identity as Lord, curious, which is used in the Septuagint. Remember I explained to you the Bible, that the only Bible they used was the Greek translation. So the word Lord, uh, Kyrios, is, uh, is used to translate Yahweh. We all know who Yahweh is. And God, Chaos, is used in the Septuagint to translate Elohim. So the two most holy names come out of Thomas's mouth, the last one to believe. He's the he's man, he's the last one. And yet he speaks the highest revelation. Isn't that interesting? 
Verse 29, John is speaking to a whole generation who, like the disciples before Jesus entered the room, who, like Mary, who before Jesus called her name, had not yet believed in the risen Christ. He is calling them to believe the testimony. And there's a small epilogue here, verse 30 and 31, where John says, here's why I wrote the gospel. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. First of all, John is clear uh, of what his twofold purpose for writing this gospel is. One, it is evangelistic. It's intended to help People believe in Jesus Christ. And it's still often used very evangelistically. I remember when I, you know, was part of the massive team of people at a Billy Graham crusade. Everybody, all the all the new believers coming down, what did they get? A Gospel of John. What did I read when I came to faith in my own bedroom? Somebody had years before challenged me, read the Gospel of John. And it's now... Four years later, I didn't know any Christians, but I thought, I've got to know. So I pulled the Bible out that was hidden away in a closet when nobody was home, and I started with the Gospel of John. And I don't know how far through it was. It was sometime in the second week. I said, you're real. You are God. So the Gospel of John is used evangelistically according to John. Secondly, it is to encourage believers in their relationship with Him. This is eternal life that you may know Him. Remember John 17, 4. So it's an encouragement, but it's also a declaration of the gospel. This theme of of, uh, knowing Him, of being with Him, as I said earlier, it's the thread that runs through all the gospel, meno. Secondly, John tells us that he has been selective in his narrative. Every story... I would say every sentence, every phrase, I think almost every word has been included by John for a very specific purpose. Now, you guys still good for us to go a few more minutes? Mm -hmm. I want to give an overview of John 21. It will just be an overview. Um, There's a lot of questions about whether John 21 belongs here at the end where we've got it, uh, or even if it's genuine. It it seems that what we just read, verses 30 and 31, seem to close the narrative. And then John 21 starts up, and it seems kind of out of sequence. In, In Jerusalem, we have the commissioning of them. So why suddenly do we go back to Galilee and go back to fishing? But... It is entirely possible that this happened because in Acts chapter 1, he appeared and taught them for 40 days. So it could be part of the 40 days that he had with the disciples before his ascension. Who wrote this gospel? Well, I have, I told you, I don't know, a week or two weeks ago, that that I have come to my personal conclusion that the Apostle John did write the book of John. John's Gospel. and um, But who wrote this chapter 21? I, I think it could either be John, because of the language, 
Or it could have been one of his disciples who was very familiar with his theology and, and uh, structure. You know, it's funny, in some ways, chapter 21 serves as a, as a longer epilogue. I just, we just called verses uh, 30-31, the, the last chapter of epilogue. But this serves like a longer, it's almost like bookends to balance the prologue. Remember John 1, 1-18. So let's just quickly look at a few things. Um, they're fishing. Jesus revealed himself through something that they were familiar with, through something that they understood. They're back in Galilee. We get a picture of pretty ordinary life, doing what they knew. Uh, maybe John is writing about how Jesus' presence is found not just in the intense moments, the, the, the mystical moments, the, the sacramental moments, but that it's also found in the midst of our everyday lives. What we have here, one of the key characters, probably the key character here is Peter, and by now he's been humbled by his failure of denying the Lord. So what's he do? He goes back to the familiar. He's a fisherman. But what he encounters is failure even in what he thought he knew. You know, it brought me back to what well, we talked about John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So maybe we have Peter in his shame and guilt kind of pulled back from the Lord. We all know what that's like, to just pull our hearts back from the Lord. Now the fish uh, clearly are symbolic. Uh, fishing symbolizes their apostolic mission. I read years ago, they caught 153 fish. I read years ago that that was uh, an analogy, a symbol for the nations of the world because at that time there were 153 known nations. I'm pretty skeptical now that I get older. I think that number seems awfully high. I mean, there's only, what is there now, 208 or something. So, uh, but, but regardless... The fish represents a great catch. It's, it, it reminds us of Jesus saying, go into all the world, right? Um, and yet the net didn't break. This massive catch, and it doesn't break. John is talking about the capacity of the gospel for all humanity. It can reach everybody. I promise you the enemy will always try to tell us it can't reach them. I just suddenly thought of the story. We were going to Thailand. Oh, jeepers, it's a long time ago, more than 10 years ago. We were going to Thailand our first time. It's a Buddhist country. And a well-meaning person on the trip handed me this long essay, this scholarly treatise. I still remember, 27 pages on why the Buddhists of Thailand will never accept the gospel. They're not interested in heaven. It doesn't fit their world. It was a real faith builder. As I read it, I thought, thank you. And uh, so it just went on and on it, that they will not accept the gospel. But this net doesn't break. It's got full capacity. And what truthfully happened was again and again and again, hundreds of times, we met Thai people that had never read that article. Yeah. <laughs> 
because we saw so many come to Christ. So many. And I don't know that there's ever been a trip where as many people said to me and various team members, I've been waiting forever for someone to tell me about this Jesus. So we need to remember this. This net didn't break. It has limitless capacity. And so really, in a sense, this this net is the equivalent of the Great Commission, going to all the world, right? The second main episode in 21 is the meal. You remember uh, the beloved disciple John says, it's so ordered. And it's early morning, it's kind of misty and everything, and Peter jumps in impetuous, he jumps in, but then when he gets there, he feels really confused and conflicted because he's not seen, uh, he's not had an encounter with the Lord uh, since he denied him. And, and so he's just very confused. The other thing that's really interesting is they're sitting around the fire, he's made breakfast for them, and they're saying, is it him? I'm not sure. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. Which is very much like the two Emmaus Road disciples, which is very much like Mary. Um, again, I think, what, I think what John is telling us is that resurrected life is different. It's similar, but different. And, uh, you know, I, I won't get into it now for time's sake, but I, I have a... I have a deep conviction of that, that it's, it's very similar, but it's very different. Because, of course, resurrected life lives outside of the constraints of time and space, can penetrate time and space at any given time. Jesus came through the rooms. He would just show up, right? So in this meal, they're all eating. Some see a symbol of the Eucharist. Uh, but for me, I think it really reminds me, because you see, the, the fish, throw your net in the other side, that goes right back to when Peter first encountered and began to follow Jesus, Luke 5. And likewise, it says, he took the bread and the fish and he gave it to them. When else did he do that? Feeding of the 5,000, right? So Jesus was reaching out, again, taking initiative, to bring them assurance and comfort and connecting in a way they would understand. And the third episode in this very quick run-through is Peter's restoration. Peter is now a very different person. Self-discovery has humbled him. Remember a few weeks ago we talked a lot about the false self and the true self. He's been humbled. John is showing that humility and brokenness qualify us for shepherding God's people. So he asks him, do you love me three times? And, and, and there's three reasons that occur to me why Jesus would have done this. One, every commentator in the world sees this. He denied him three times, so Jesus restores him three times. Right? Feed my sheep, feed my lambs. So the first is this balance. Three denials, three restorations. The second one is this. Peter now has humility. And, and that qualifies us, but it's not everything we need. He also must have great love for Jesus to be able to shepherd the people. Great love 
for Jesus is what will enable enable Peter. His humility and brokenness, okay, now you're qualified. But his great love is what will enable him. And the third one, and I've actually preached this a lot over the years, is that Jesus knew that Peter loved him. He wasn't looking for information. But Peter had completely lost confidence in his own heart. He had got out of touch with his own heart. Peter had to discover that Peter loved Jesus. And so Jesus was establishing that he knew of Peter's devotion. Like Mary, John is stressing that failure does not disqualify us, nor does it distance us from the Lord. That is so counterintuitive. It's the gospel. It's this incredible, unconditional good news. Whether it's the woman at the well, whether it's Mary, the list goes on and on. The, the, The thief, the tax gatherer, it does not disqualify us and it does not distance us. The beloved disciple, they're walking along, remember, and, and Peter says, yeah, but what about him who's following? The main purpose of this whole section uh, is simply, and that's 20 to 25 if you want to look it up on your own, uh, the main purpose of this section is simply to establish that all these years later, the old man John is the same person as the young man who witnessed everything firsthand. He's, he is establishing I am a first-hand witness. Um, he's bringing security to his audience near the end of the first century. That there's somebody who saw this. He's clarifying about the legend that he would never die. Jesus, he, he writes in there. He never said I'd never die. He says, if I want to keep him until then, it's not your business. And then he finishes, and this is so... Parallel to the end of chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, we just talked about the epilogue. Verse 25, he said, And if they were written one by one, uh, I do not think that the world could contain the books. I don't think this is about the amount of knowledge, although hyperbole was used in that time for emphasis. But I think really he's going deeper. I think he's not talking about the number of miracles, but about the mystery of the depths of Christ. That's what I think he's saying. It's an infinite mystery. The world cannot contain, cannot understand him fully. He is beyond time or space. So, oh, I've gone longer, but it's the last night. Let me give a conclusion to the resurrection and I want to say thanks to Joseph Ratzinger, his, his three volume set, Jesus of Nazareth he had a wonderful section on the resurrection and I want to just uh, reference that as I share a couple of points here. The resurrection is the center and the meaning of the gospel. Paul wrote that if it's not true then we are to be pitied as most miserable of all people The resurrection is the crucial point. Without it, we cannot know or understand Jesus and the gospel. I would say the same about the cross. I think the cross is is our interpretive key for all of the gospel. The resurrection is not 
resuscitation. It's not like when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, Lazarus was later on going to get old and die. When Jesus rose, he did not return to normal biological life. In the resurrection, Jesus did not become a ghost that is somehow able to reveal himself to the realm of the living, which is what the Gnostics said, which is what the disciples said. He's a ghost. He said, give me something to eat. That's in the synoptics, right? Um, the disciples' encounters were not mystical uh, experiences where they were lifted outside of themselves. They were real. The resurrection is a historical event, uh, yet unlike any other. It happened in history, but it transcends the barriers of space and time. The resurrection brought and brings a whole new dimension of human experience, a new kind of reality. This is what I am on. A, I've been on this journey of pressing into Christ to try to begin to understand more and more this this ultimate reality. It's not an alternate reality. Uh, C.S. Lewis said, "This is the shadow lens." That's the light. That's the truth. And that resurrection life is the true life. And we live in a world that tries to blind us and deafen us to that all the time. So we need John. We need to meditate. We need to contemplate. We need to be silent before the Lord and begin to let true life, not shadow lands, true life come through to us. Tertullian, one of the early church fathers who I like very much, said that through the resurrection, spirit and blood have a place within God. What's he saying? He's saying that what happened at the incarnation through the resurrection now becomes our own incarnation, our own reality. That, that man and God became one, hypostasis. Remember, we've talked a lot about that. John 1.14. But what, what's happening now through the resurrection, it's not just Jesus, it's us. And that's the good news. It's already done. It is finished. It's done a whole new kind of life. This is what Paul expressed so fully. Read Ephesians chapter 1, 2, and 3. Read Colossians chapter 1 and 2. I was going to read some stuff, but it's, I've gone too long. But it is about us being seated with Him in heavenly places. It's this ultimate reality, not alternate reality. We are chosen for resurrection life with Him. Christ's transformed body is the place and the means whereby we enter into communion with God. It's because of His body. It's because the Word became flesh. That's how we enter in. Christ's resurrection was the beginning of a whole new kind of life. Really a whole new race of people, what Paul called a new creation. Resurrection was about breaking out into an entirely new way of life. No longer subject to the law of dying and of becoming, but it lies beyond that. A life that opens up a new dimension of human existence, an eternal dimension. An eternal dimension of human existence that is not when we die and go to heaven. It is ultimate reality. This means the possibility, the invitation of a totally new future. One marked by the regeneration and restoration of all of creation. He created a new space of being in true union with the triune God. The resurrection made that happen right now. It brings it.
to us right now. Well, if you know your Bible, you've probably figured out by now that this is Steve's final teaching on John. We're going to come back for one final live wrap-up session next week. So if you've got a question that's been nagging you all season, this is your last chance to send it to podcast at impactnations.com, and we'll bring it up for discussion next week. In the meantime, if you haven't been on a journey of compassion yet, now is the time. Register for the Philippines trip at impactnations.com slash philippines. If you can't spell Philippines, just go ahead to impactnations.com slash joc, and you'll find a link there. If you can't spell J-O-C, then I can't help you. Thanks, and have a great week.